From about the time that I was 15, every time I meet a little old lady, she asks me the same question. Do you play basketball? I mean, I get it. I'm almost six foot five and hopefully relatively athletic looking. So, you know, even Granny can see the potential. But there's something that Granny can't see, something inside. And it's this. I don't care about basketball. I don't. I mean, yeah, in all of northern Saskatchewan, I was of the 30 kids there, one of six that was over six feet. So I was forced to be on the team, you know, practically hogtied and thrown in the van for every tournament. And it showed when I did play that I didn't care. My heart wasn't in it. It wasn't at all. Maybe it was my vanity. You know, there's this one game I can remember that I think it's my mother's fault that I'm so vain because I was about to get onto the court and I looked across the court, big game, right, important game, and there's my dad looking me in the eyes and he's like, kill somebody, you know, right? And I look and there's my mom and she looks me in the eyes and she says, fix your hair. <laughs> but it's not just vanity, right? I, part of it is like, have you ever seen the philosopher's football match by Monty Python? That's a little bit what it's like when I do the sports, okay? Right? I'm running down the court, and I'm like, why am I doing this? Like, is this just me trying to display some violent vision of masculinity in a socially acceptable way? Like, what's going on here? I didn't do the sports very good. So there is an English idiom, though, a cliche for my experience with sports. And I've already said it. We would say that my heart wasn't in it which is a beautiful expression, actually, because it's saying that everything can be right on the outside. You can have the right height, the right hand and foot size, right? You can have the skills, the abilities, the reflexes, but if something internal isn't there, you're never going to be very good at it. In fact, you're going to be wasting your time. And when we come to the scriptures, you're going to find that the first thing we're told to do, the first and most important thing we're told to do is to love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart. What does that mean? We've ripped off this whole series from Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, and he's the one that outlines shape as an acronym for the things that we have, and he talks about the heart, what the Bible means by the heart by saying this. The Bible uses the term heart to describe the bundle of desires, hopes, interests, ambitions, dreams, and affections you have. Your heart represents the source of all your motivations, what you love to do, and what you care about the most. So serving the Lord with all of our hearts means that all of those things, all our hopes, ambitions, our dreams, our desires, they're part of it. You could say we're supposed to serve him with our passion. And the problem is, is that sometimes in churches and in other places, we create systems that say serving God has to look a certain way. We end up pigeonholing ourselves into something that our hearts isn't in because everybody else tells us right. We get Zac Efron'd, right? Forced onto the basketball team when all we want to do is dance. <laughs> but in all seriousness, it's a real problem. It happens sometimes. Our, our parents, our teachers, the people close to us, they see an ability, they see something we can do, and they, they push us to do it even if our heart isn't in it. But God wants us to serve him wholeheartedly. He wants us to serve him not just dutifully, but passionately. Now, 
there's going to be some objections to this, right? Part of what I'm starting to tote is that God actually cares what you want. He wants you to do some of the things that you want to do, which sounds like this whole everybody's a unique, beautiful snowflake and gets a participation ribbon millennial philosophy. That's not what I'm talking about. We're going to explore a couple of objections as we talk about this. The first objection is going to be that, well, aren't we called to suffer? Doesn't Jesus say, carry your cross? That doesn't sound very much like getting the desires of your heart. And what about our sinfulness? Am I not wicked and depraved? Why should I listen to my own internal self if I'm wicked and depraved? And through it, we're going to see what it really means to serve Jesus and serve him wholeheartedly. So probably the most popular image of God the Father is the roof of the Sistine Chapel. Pretty serious looking dude, right? Doesn't look all that warm and fuzzy. Doesn't look like he would really give a rip what you want or what you care about or what you think. I don't love this picture, partly because I think it doesn't line up with what we see in Scripture. It lines up with half of it, but half-truth is a dangerous thing. Because the place that you tend to meet God early on in Scripture is at the intersection of what the world needs and what somebody wants. We've got Abram, 75 years old. All he wants is a child. God not only promises him a child, he promises him that that child will become a nation and that nation will bless all nations. Joseph, Joseph dreams that he will be elevated to a place of power. And after years of suffering, yes, he is. He's elevated to second in command over all Egypt, and he saves civilization as we know it. Hannah, Hannah wants a son. She wants her womb to be opened. And her son Samuel becomes the one who ushers Israel into a new age. And King Solomon, I think, is one of the best examples of this. King Solomon, he becomes king and God appears to him. And if it was that God that we saw a picture of a minute ago, we would think that he's going to appear to him and be like, okay, here's the rules, here's the regulations, make sure you do this, don't do this, you know, all that kind of stuff. And instead, what does God say when he appears to Samuel? Ask me for whatever you want me to give you. Tell me what you want. It seems like the hopes, the dreams, the ambitions, and the desires of people are very much God's business. Why is that? Well, in part because he put them there. We started this whole series out of Psalm 139, starting to read at verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. This is the psalmist talking to God. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. So God made you. That's like a a fundamental of biblical theology. But the description of being made here is almost like being sculpted. In Ephesians, we hear that we are God's handiwork, which is the word used there in Greek is poesis. It means poetry. We are the poem that God is writing. So the desires, the dreams, the ambitions, the good ones that are in your heart are put there by your heavenly Father. He made you the way you are. He knit you together in the secret place. So when you decide to follow him, when you decide to join him on his creation renewal project, don't be surprised if you come to prayer and you hear him say, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want to do? What do you see? What problems? What would you like to do? 
And I think we can get an even clearer picture on this when we come to Jesus, right? You know, a lot of us think of Jesus sometimes much like that picture of God the Father. We get this, like, very serious, distant-looking, like, only suffering kind of guy, right? But look closely at Jesus' life. Jesus is trying to keep the fact he's Messiah a secret at the beginning because he knows it'll get him in trouble. So when he heals people, he tells them, don't tell anybody about this. And what do they do? They tell everybody. But then somebody else comes up, and he knows they're going to tell everybody, but what does he do? He still heals them. It's like he can't help himself. In Mark chapter 3, we actually read that him and his disciples are so caught up teaching and healing and casting out demons that they forget to eat, which is like kind of a big deal. I don't do that very often. And even in his angry moment that we sometimes emphasize a little too much in John chapter 2 where he flips the tables in the temple court and gets after the people who are, you know, using religion as a means for gain. John quotes Psalm 69 and says, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal, passion. It seems like Jesus liked what he was doing. It seems like he was doing the things that he wanted to do, the things that he was made for. He was zealous. He was passionate. He cared. His heart was in it. Yes, there were dark moments. Yes, there were difficult moments. Yes, there were moments where he was like, why am I putting up with this wicked and perverse generation? But overall, he seems totally caught up in what he's doing. Which leads me to this whole idea of vocation, of ministry, Vocation is a word we use sometimes. It comes from the Latin for to call. It means the things you are called to do, and we think called by God. There's a writer named Parker Palmer who writes this about vocation. He says, vocation at its deepest level is this is something I can't not do for reasons I'm unable to explain to anyone else and don't fully understand myself, but are nonetheless compelling. Put shortly, vocation is things I can't not do for reasons I can't explain. This is just the stuff that leaks out of the very core of my being. It's the stuff that I am compelled to do as if by like an invisible hand. And Jesus promises his followers that this will be part of their experience, this kind of like what you want to do thing. In John 15, verse 7, we read, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Ask for what you want, and it will be done for you. Okay. That's a pretty strong statement. And it's a pretty dangerous one, too. I get that. I get that this is a little squirmy, that, like, God actually cares about what you want, because it gets abused, right? There are preachers who have private jets and, like, hilltop mansions and summer homes in the Hamptons abusing this verse. And there are some of us who have been raised under those types of things and we think, you know, if I just prayed hard enough, my mental health would get better, the cancer would go away, or if I just believed enough, right? It gets abused. And one of the first objections that we need to clarify this whole ask for whatever you want thing is the objection of suffering. Doesn't Jesus say, if you want to follow me, carry carry your cross? Doesn't he say that the blessed ones are the ones who are persecuted, the ones who suffer for righteousness? Doesn't he say, in this world you will have trouble? Absolutely. All those things are true. But there's a reaction to kind of what's going on that goes so far down that road that it says, you know, the only way you know you're really serving God is if you're suffering while you do it. I I have some friends who worked for a Christian organization that was expanding, And as it was expanding, they were building a new building, and they were building it on a really tight time frame. And 
as all buildings. It wasn't happening in time. And so they started pushing the construction company around the clock, right? The senior leaders of this organization, Christian organization, were doing this. And people were getting hurt. Like a guy lost his finger. Things were bad. They actually had staff living on site near this construction site too. And they were being kept up all night with like little kids. And finally, one of my friends said, enough. And he went to a senior leader and he says like, hey, this isn't ethical. Like this isn't good what you're doing. People are getting hurt. You're keeping us up all night. Like what is up? And the senior leader said, well, it's for the kingdom. Like, who cares who gets hurt in the road, right? We're making a good thing happen, right? Aren't you willing to suffer for the kingdom? Yes, suffering's a guarantee. But Christian suffering is not suffering for suffering's sake. We're not masochists, right? We don't take pleasure from suffering. In fact, if you go look at Jesus and ask yourself the question, okay, why did Jesus carry his cross? Right? What, what's up with the suffering that he took on? You'll find a surprising answer in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews 12, we read, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Why did Jesus go to the cross? For joy. For joy. For the joy set before him. See, Jesus could endure the cross because he could see beyond it. He could take the pain because he knew the pain was for something better. He chose it, and even though it was a difficult choice to make, he wanted it because he knew it was what was good for the world. See, good and godly suffering is that kind of thing. It's the suffering of standing in the gap between the world the way it is and the world the way it should be. It's, willing, it's being willing to take on that pain. Good and godly suffering is when we deny our flesh, when we let go of these like junk food sin desires and hold out for the four-course meal of God's goodness and righteousness. It's the pain of the space in between the way things are and the way that they should be. And if you have ever wanted anything good in this world, you have suffered in that way. I guarantee you, you have. We have a newborn. I know this, right? If you want something good in a broken world, you will face resistance bringing it into the world. It will hurt to have your heart in it. Always. But you don't have your heart in it to make it hurt, right? It's because you've got a vision for a better thing coming. Another objection that might come up is this objection of our sinfulness. What about our depravity? If you're not familiar with that word depravity, um, taking verses like Titus 1.15 where it talks about unbelievers having a depraved mind and Romans 3.23 where it says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, John Calvin and other scholars came to the conclusion that the Bible teaches something called total depravity. It's the idea that we are com like completely sinful. Um, Daryl Johnson summarizes it best when he says, it means that no part of my life is untouched by sin. And I believe this. I think, I think this is true. But there's kind of a popular way of using this idea in some Christian corners and in some of our minds that's a distortion of it. And it says basically, I'm completely rotten. There's nothing good in me, so I should never pay attention to myself ever. And some of you might have been raised in that kind of a tradition. You might be uncomfortable with everything we've been saying so far. In fact, you might even be thinking of Jeremiah 17, 9, where it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. 
who can understand it. So listen to my heart, pay attention to what I want. No, I'm wicked, I'm sinful, I'm evil. No way, I'm not going to do that. Well, yes, the Bible says those things are true. We're sinful. But that doesn't necessarily mean we shouldn't pay attention to our hearts. In fact, I think it's because of our sinfulness that we need to pay more attention to our hearts. And here's why. Augustine, a fourth century pastor, was probably the source for some of Calvin's thinking. And he's got this beautiful little phrase in Latin where he says, humans are incurvatus in se, which means curved in on themselves. It's like the image of a plant stretching towards the light and bending in the wrong direction. And if you know anything about sin in the Bible, and we've talked about this before, the word for sin in Hebrew is an, it's an archery term. It means missing the mark. It means aiming, taking fire, and the arrow going astray. So part of both of those images is the idea that we're usually aiming at something, and I think philosophers and theologians would say, often what we're aiming at is what would be called an apparent good. Very few people are seeking evil. Right? We're actually looking for something good, but we just end up settling for lesser goods. We end up missing the mark. Another way of thinking about this, and we've talked about this before as well, but I think it's really important, is that all sin is a worship issue. It's, all sin is idolatry. The first commandment stands at the top for a reason. You shall have no other gods before me. Therefore, breaking any of the other commandments underneath is putting a god above God. Idolatry, I like to define this way. It's seeking to fulfill our legitimate needs in a broken way. So then, the wild thing is, actually, instead of just like getting all shameful and beating yourself up when you sin, you need to pay attention. Because the way that you're aiming and the way that you're missing is saying something. If you struggle with lust, you're probably hungry for intimacy. If you're prideful and boastful, you're probably hungry to feel worthy and loved. If you're greedy, you probably want provision. If you're gluttonous, you probably want to feel peace, but you're settling for the cheap calm of numbing out. And it's not just the bad that we do, it's the good that we do that we need to examine as well because we might be engaged in that charity just to show off, just to look good, to make something of ourselves. That's why over and over again, the scriptures say the heart is what counts. Motivation matters. And Jeremiah tells us that if the heart is part of the problem, it's going to be part of the solution. That after the Messiah comes, we read this in Jeremiah 31, something's going to happen to our hearts. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel, Yahweh says. After that time, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So the whole Jesus coming and the Spirit coming to fill us, all of that is what Dallas Willard calls for the renovation of our hearts. God is renovating our hearts. He is making them new. He's healing them. He's making them clean, just like we said. And we can pay attention to that. If we want to serve God wholeheartedly, if we want our heart to be in it, we need to let him engage in this process. And finally, with that in mind, we can turn to a passage that I just have to talk about because I'm sure some of you have it like cross-stitched on your wall. And that's in Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. A very abused passage. But notice that there are two commandments. Trust in the Lord. It's an imperative. Trust as in childlike reliance upon your heavenly father. 
Delight in the Lord, as in find your joy in him, relate to him, be close to him. If you do these two things, you will find that the desires of your heart are starting to be fulfilled. Why? Because you start to want the right things. He renovates your heart. He makes it new. He heals it and makes it clean and helps you seek the things that you really, truly need. So how do we do that? Well, just to remind you, we've been talking about this because in this whole series, we're talking about our vocation. We're talking about how we're called to minister and participate with God in this kingdom renewal project. And a quote that many of you have probably heard before by Frederick Beekner comes to mind, and I've kind of hinted at it already, that the place that God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet, where what your heart really wants and what the world really needs meets. That's where your vocation is. And as we've been discovering, we're really bad at knowing what we really want. Like if the world relied on mine and Michelle's ability to find a restaurant on a Saturday night, we'd all be doomed. Like I don't know what I want most of the time. I'm the type of guy that like it'll be 2 a.m., I will be in my basement covered in Cheeto dust watching anime for like six nights straight. And then Michelle will come down and be like, honey, I think you're depressed. And I'd be like, what makes you think that? (laughs) We don't know what we want. Not really. So to quote the Spice Girls, it's not just what we want, it's what we really, really want that matters. And how do we figure that out? Well, we need to reflect on our lives with God's Spirit. Proverbs tells us that as water reflects a face, so one's life reflects the heart. The things you do are showing you who you are all the time. And what we need to learn to do is prayerfully reflect on our lives, ask questions. Why was I so mad today? Why did that fight spiral out of control? Why did work, why did I come out of work and I felt so good, so energized, so alive? Like, like what's going on inside me? We need to learn to examine our lives and pay attention to them. But as Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful. It's a slippery eel. We can't even figure out our own hearts. But that passage goes on in Jeremiah and he says, After we say the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, who can understand it? Yahweh says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. So the one who made your heart knows it. The one who makes hearts understands them. And we have the gift of God's most Holy Spirit inside of us to help us to understand who we are and what we're called to do. And one of the ways that we can kind of do this practice is an ancient prayer that the Jesuits pray every night that was kind of made up by Ignatius of Loyola, and it's the prayer of examine. It's got kind of four steps. You can cut it a hundred different ways, but there's kind of four basic movements in this prayer. The first is to pray something like the end of Psalm 139, where we read, Um, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It doesn't have to be those words, but the prayer being something like, Holy Spirit, I recognize that you're here and I need your help. I need you to reveal myself to me. I need you to reveal what you're doing in my life to me. And once you've prayed that prayer, the next step is basically just to go through your day and reflect on what was good perhaps where you felt energized or passionate or alive, or you noticed that you felt the presence of God, right? You meditate on those things. Think about them. Think about what they mean. And then the next move is to think about the bad, right? Where did you feel 
depleted and listless, dead or far from the Father, right? You reflect on those things, and with the Spirit, you try and understand them. And then basically, you just end thinking about tomorrow or the next week or whatever time frame you've got and say, God, help me to live more in category two than category three. Give me what I need to to be in the good, to be righteous and true, to be following you with all my heart as we go on. You know, if you're here and you're in a season where you really actually don't know what you're passionate about and you, like, really feel lost in that, you can take this even a step further. I did this for a season. Just take a notebook around with you for, like, a week. And every time you do something, scale it from, like, 1 to 10 on, like, how energized and alive you felt after, right? 1 being not very, 10 being very high. If you do that for a week and at the end of that week you prayerfully reflect on that data and you look for what connects the high points and the low points, you'll get some amazing information about who you are, what you're made for, the types of things that you're attracted to. Or the simplest, the bone simplest version of this that I really like from a Benedictine monk is if you've only got two minutes, you can just literally be like, what am I feeling right now? Lord, I'm angry. Lord, I give my anger to you. Help me to understand it. Just that simple. All of this is prayer, right? Prayer does many, many things, but one of the things that prayer is there for is for this relationship with God, is for this learning who we are and who God made us to be. Um, Theophan, the recluse, uh, Orthodox monk, once wrote, for what is prayer? Prayer is the raising of the mind and heart to God. The essence of prayer, then, is the mental ascent to God from the heart. The mind stands in the heart, consciously before God, and filled with proper and necessary reverence, it begins to pour out its heart before him. This is the prayer of the heart, and this should be all true prayer. Right? He wants our whole heart. That's what the Shema says. That's the greatest commandment. Serve him with all of your heart, which means you've got to give him the access. You've got to let the walls down, and you've got to let him in. Now, as we come to a close today, um, I know that this is a complicated topic, and I know that there are lots of objections to certain parts of it that we claim are intellectual. But if I'm honest, when I've sat down across from somebody and their heart just isn't in their life anymore, it's almost never the ideas that are the problem. The fact of the matter is they're usually disappointed in God for something pretty big. Usually something has gone wrong or they've had a desire and they've never seen it fulfilled and they're just kind of sitting in this listless, sleepy, heart-out-of-it kind of place. And that's a hard place to be. That's a terrible place to be, and I've been there. I know I shared this story at my son's dedication, but um, Michelle and I, from the very beginning of our relationship, we knew that we had a vocation. It was more than just like something to do. We knew we had a vocation for parenting for discipling and raising the next generation in some way. We knew we were called to that. We had that spoken over us. But we also knew that getting pregnant would be a long journey for us. We had had that diagnosis, right? So for 10 years, we knew this. And for five years, we were actively trying. We were in fertility treatments. We were in and out. It wasn't happening. And all through that, I, I held on to hope. Because I knew it was something God had called us to, but I also knew it didn't have to happen by having our own kid. We could adopt. There were many other ways. But... The closer we got to the the moment when we were doing IVF and we were actually going to try to have a kid, the more I realized how much I really wanted it, how much this was something that I had hung a lot of my hopes on. And when that first transfer failed, I was the most dead I've ever been inside. I was a zombie for months. Um, And yeah, it sucked. (laughs) It was awful. My heart was out of everything as a result of it. 
And as often happens in a marriage, you know, when my hope went down, her hope went up. And we said, you know, we've got, we can try again, and we tried again. And at the end of trying again, 10 days after we had tried that transfer, we found out we were pregnant. And uh, looking back on that, I feel like, because, you know, when it didn't work, I was just like, God, forget it. Like, I'm done. This is enough. I don't want any more. Like, if you just, just use me, I'll serve you with duty, whatever. Um, I feel like that moment when we knew it happened for us, it was like the Lord saying, Ricky, you might forget, but I won't. And I know it's a complicated story. I know people who have hoped for that and haven't had it, and I'm so sorry, and I don't know why we did and others don't. I, I don't claim to understand that mystery. And I don't share that story just to say, you know, like, hey, if you really want a kid or a car or a house or something, God's going to give it to you. You know that's not it either. In fact, I share that story because when I look back on that season of waiting now, that season in between, I can see that we had a choice every day. Because God was giving us opportunities to use the thing we were called to. We worked at summer camps. Michelle was a nanny. I worked with youth and young adults. We had nieces and nephews. We had adopted nieces and nephews. We, we were called to them the way, same way we wanted to be called to our own child. And every day we had a choice to put our heart in it or to hold it back. To let God meet the want and desire of our hearts in that way that wasn't complete to us, but was enough or not. And yeah, there were moments where we would sit over like one of my nieces while they were falling asleep and we would both just weep because she wasn't ours. But at the same time, God, I knew I, he hadn't forgotten us. He was shepherding that need. He was taking care of us. He was helping to fulfill something we were called to do just in a way that we didn't expect. He doesn't forget. He doesn't let go. And maybe you're here and you've been like thrown against the rocks of life for a very long time. You've had hope and dream and hope and dream and desire and you've wanted it and it's not happened and it feels like the waves are just breaking you into the sand. You need to know that he's heard every prayer you have uttered in the deep dark of night. He watched your heart be knit together. He knows everything that you long for. The Psalms say that he holds your tears in a vial, that not one of them has gone away wasted. He is not a man that he might forget. Isaiah says, a mother may have a child at her breast and she may forget that child, but God will not forget you. He doesn't forget. He doesn't forsake. It may not come the way we want. It may not come the way that we expect. It may not even come on this side of things. We have story after story in scripture of like Abraham promised that his children would be a nation and he dies alone in the desert with one son, Right? We have all of those stories, but he hasn't forgotten. And whether it's this side or the other side of eternity, there is something beyond your wildest dreams waiting for you, something of kingdom value, something deeper than just wanting some petty little thing, but something where you are called to partner alongside him to help make the world what it's meant to be. This kingdom is, after all, a kingdom of the impossible being made possible. It's a kingdom of dry bones having flesh put on them and breathing again. It's a kingdom of resurrection power. He has not forgotten you. He will not forsake you. And I believe today that the Holy Spirit 
is here in this room and he wants to reawaken some things in us. He wants to reawaken some of those ambitions, some of those dreams, some of those desires, some of those things that we let go of because keeping our heart in it hurts too much. It's not an accident that we call Jesus' going to the cross his what? His passion. Because passion always costs pain. It always takes a lot. Having your heart in it always hurts. But don't give up. Don't quit because he hasn't quit on you. You can forget and he won't. You can let go and he won't. And when that moment comes, when we stand before him in eternity, we'll be able to see the way that he has been holding on to our heart and shepherding us all our life long and how he will for the rest of time. As the worship team comes up, let me pray for you. Father, for the one in this room right now who, uh, who's in that place of feeling like uh, the hope and dreams that you've given them, the good, righteous things that you've called them to do and be feel far away, God, I just pray that you would minister to them. I pray that you, by the power of your spirit, would be speaking to them, would be whispering your love to them, would be showing them opportunities and places where um, you're calling them to the wholehearted kind of life that you have for us. Help us to serve you with all of our hearts, Lord. Help us not to hold back, not to quit, and not just say good enough, Lord, but to be the, uh, the people that you've made us to be. And we just invite you, Spirit, as we worship to, to minister among us. In Jesus' name, amen.